0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. I'm Alex, if you don't know me, but, you know, I've been around a little bit, but uh, I'll be reading out of 1 Peter this morning, 1 through 12, and I'll be out of the ESV as well, so please bear with me. I'm usually an SB. but Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the obedience to Jesus Christ, and the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found and result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not know him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he was predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Brilliant.
1: Well, um, my name is Luke. I'm one of the elders here at Life Church, and um, it's really, really good to be here this morning. I say that every week, and let me just say in marriage, You hope that you show your love for each other, but you also say it. And I really love you guys. I just want you to know that. I'm not being gooey. I really do. And uh, I pray that God would bless us this morning because um, we have a special morning. We're beginning a new preaching series looking at the first letter uh, from Peter which Alex just read the first 12 verses wonderfully for us. And so this morning, we're going to look at a few things. But actually, they're not just the things we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see some of the big themes we're going to look at all term. So the first thing is we're going to see that to truly understand the New Testament, we have to have a grip on the Old Testament. The second thing we're going to see, that as Christians, we do not and should not fit into the world around us even though that will present us with some very real challenges. And finally, we will see that our understanding of tomorrow shapes how we live today. And we'll see all of that by opening up 1 Peter. And I hope you do open up 1 Peter because it's an incredible letter. It's a wonderful letter. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to have a chance to really kind of slowly, about half a chapter at a time, walk through this letter. And I love it particularly because I think it has some of the most complete teaching on what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus this side of eternity. How do I walk through suffering? Peter will show us. How do I live in a culture which is hostile to my beliefs? Peter will show us. How do I say no to the sinful temptations in my heart? Peter will show us. How do I view the church? Peter will show us. How do I rejoice in all things? Open up one Peter and we'll see. And I do encourage you, open up 1 Peter. Um, we have little term cards. Uh, who's got a term card in their desk that they don't want to wait for me? These little term cards, wonderful things, they'll show us things that are going on this term, but they also will show you what passage we're preaching on each week. And so it'll take you about three minutes to read the passage. And I really encourage you, read the passage before it'll really enrich and help God speak to you as we come to it together. But why not go a little bit further? It takes about 20 minutes to read 1 Peter. Do you know how I know that? It's because I've listened to it on an audio Bible. You can get great free audio Bibles out there. And it's a fantastic way to hear the whole letter in one go and hear what God is saying to us. So I really encourage you, why not do that? Why not read 1 Peter once a week over the next three months so you can just be in it the whole time? It's been a great privilege of mine as preparing, uh, preparing the preaching series this term. I've read 1 Peter dozens and dozens of times. I've just got to soak myself in the Word of God. And it actually, when it's 20 minutes long, it's much easier than a book like Isaiah or Leviticus. So um, we might as well take advantage of it while we can. But this morning, we're going to walk through just the first 12 verses the first half of chapter one. And we'll start quite slowly because we're going to unpack a few big themes that go throughout the whole letter and then we'll speed up at the end. So should we read verse one again together? Just verse one. Okay, let's read it again. 1 Peter 1 verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Alex, I bet you were pleased I got you to read out all those names, weren't you? Um, (laughs) We say that 1 Peter is one of the 66 books of the Bible, but sometimes the word book is a bit confusing, isn't it? Because this is a letter. This is a letter from a real person to a real group of people. It's a letter from who we know as Simon Peter, one of the apostles, one of the 12 apostles. You might remember a few weeks ago, actually the week before Easter Sunday, we looked a bit at Peter's life. We looked at Luke chapter 22 and how Peter and Jesus were very different from one another. But we know Peter well. Simon Peter is all over the four Gospels. And he's critical to the spread of the good news in the early chapters of Acts. As Jesus is resurrected, he's critical to the spread of the good news and planting of churches. And so this letter was probably written 20 or 30 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. And it's written by a real person. We know him, Peter. And it's written to real people. Isn't that amazing? When we read the Bible, this isn't some abstract holy text that's like a, an Ari textbook. These are real personal interactions between genuine Jesus followers. And so who was Peter writing to? Well, Paul's letters were often written to churches in big cities. So when you read Ephesus, that was uh, Ephesians, that was to the churches in Ephesus or Thessalonica or Corinth. Uh, but here, Peter is actually writing to a large region. So we've got a, we've got a map. Are people, are people map lovers? Some of you will like maps, will not you? The, there's a lack of excitement on this side for maps. Really? I love a good Bible map. So uh, you can see on, there's the zoom out map on the left, um, but on the, the, the kind of zoomed in map on the right, you can see the boot of Italy at west You can then see uh, Greece, what we call modern-day Greece in the middle, Macedonia and other places in um, in that time. And then on the right, we have modern-day Turkey, um, but we have five regions. You can't see them very well. They are in red, but Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. So all that north region of what is now Turkey, what in that time we call Asia Minor. Peter is writing to a big group of churches, many different Christians in this time. It's a good map, isn't it? Surely. You enjoyed that, didn't you? You did enjoy that. Good. I'm not telling you you have to enjoy it. I just, you know. So Peter was writing to real people. What do we know about them? Well, we don't know a lot about these Christians, but we know the majority of them would have been Gentile, non-Jewish. We know that because of the region it was. Uh, We're no longer um, down in uh, Judea, Judea or Galilee or Jerusalem. That's not even on our map. You can see on the zoomed out map. You can see Palestine and Jerusalem. We're not even there anymore. We're, we're much further into the Roman Empire, as it were. So they're gentle um, majority uh, cities and regions. And there's a few hints in the text which confirm that, that the majority of the audience weren't uh, Jewish. But of course, there were a few Jews uh, who had converted to Christianity in these cities. Uh, we know that in particular because in Acts 2, it's quite a little cool connection, in Acts 2 verse 9, Uh, at the the festival of Pentecost, where many Jews from around the Roman Empire had come to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem, we're told that some of the Jews had come from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, three of our five regions. So Peter is writing to a large group, to many Christians in little communities, uh, mainly Gentile audience, but some Jews as well. And while Peter's letters lack some of the little personal touches that Paul has, Paul's got some really funny personal touches, doesn't he? he? says, can you two please stop arguing? Or in another letter, he says, oh, can you remember my favourite robe when you next see me? Or my favourite one, make sure you say hi to your mum for me. Isn't that such a sweet thing to say in a letter? We don't get that in 1 Peter. But what it lacks in personal touches, it has an abundance of relevance to all of the Christians living in first century Rome at the time. And I believe... 1 Peter is just as relevant to us, Christians living in the modern West, in Britain today. And so in this first verse, just verse 1, we're still in verse 1, guys. We will speed up, don't worry. Um, But in this first verse, Peter sets up one of the keys to understanding his whole letter. I don't know if you spotted it. You probably didn't. But Peter says one of the keys to understanding the whole letter is to understand that each of us have two defining relationships in our lives. We have a vertical relationship and we have a horizontal relationship. We have a relationship with God and we have a relationship with the world around us. Where does Peter say that in verse 1? In the word exile. In the words exile. I don't know if you know what an exile is. Uh, some of you will know that word, but, but if not, you might think of a modern-day asylum seeker. An exile is anyone who uh, is not able to live in the land that's their own. They're kicked out of their own land. So modern-day asylum seeker is a good equivalent. You might think of a uh, Syrian or um, refugees from Ukraine or Afghanistan who, uh, because of threat to their life, are no longer able to live in their own nation, but living surrounding nations, or maybe even a nation like ours. Another good example of an exile is a political exile, someone who, because they oppose the governing regime of a country, are kicked out of the land. But exile is also a thoroughly biblical concept. When Jesus comes on the scene as a first century Jew, he comes at a time where the people of God, the Jewish people, are in exile. You see, Over a thousand years before, God had given the people a promised land, a land which was their own, which more or less they lived in peace over many hundreds of years. That was their land. They belonged there. They were safe there. And yet 600 years before Jesus, they were kicked out of their land when the Babylonian Empire came and invaded. And so the Jewish people were still the people of God, but no longer in the land of God. They were exiles. A little bit later, they were even allowed back into Jerusalem and the surrounding villages and and towns. But they were still exiles because although they were technically in their own land, it was still ruled by the the, the greater empires around. In Jesus' time, that was Rome. And so exile is a thoroughly biblical concept, a really important idea to understanding uh, the Old Testament. But clearly, Peter thinks it's important for us to understand as well. So the question is, Why did Peter call these Christians, most of whom were Gentiles, why did he call them exiles? And why, by extension, does he call all Christians exiles? It's a bit like calling me an exile, you might think. I was born in England. I was raised in England. I'm a British citizen, and I enjoy all of the protections and privileges of the state. It would be mad to call me an exile, wouldn't it? So why is Peter calling... These Christians, who some of whom were Roman citizens, some of whom were living in the land they were born in, why was he calling them exiles? Peter calls Christians then and now because of this. He calls them exiles because of this. When you were born again, when you came up out of the baptismal waters, you became citizens of a new kingdom. You see, we live in a world which is no longer our own. We are no longer citizens here. But as Peter calls us later in chapter two, we're foreigners. We're exiles. We're we're strangers, he calls us. And this is one of the central ideas to Peter's letter. We live in a world where we don't belong. It's explained by 1 Peter is one of the letters that is most loved by some of the most marginalised people groups over the centuries. And if if you personally are not a British citizen, you'll get some of this. You'll get what it is to have to go to the embassy. You'll get what it is to jump through multiple hoops just to do basic things like get healthcare or sign up to benefits. You'll get the feeling of being spoken to or treated like you're an issue or inconvenience rather than a person. Some of us in this room will know much better than others that it's really difficult to be a foreigner or a stranger in a land which either isn't your own or people don't think is your own. But actually, as Christians, each and every one of us must realise that we are all foreigners and strangers here. We are all exiles. And we must wake up to the fact that we live in a world which is increasingly hostile to what we believe and how we live. Gone are the days where, as Christians, we could pretend to blend in. The values that underpin our world are increasingly in jarring contrast to what we believe and the values of our Jesus and so if we're going to continue in the faith, I'm afraid that I think many things will actually only get harder when following him. Because we're not citizens of this world anymore. We don't belong. So what is our relationship to this world? Our horizontal relationship. We're exiles. We're foreigners. We're strangers. Do you think we're ready for verse two? Yeah? Okay. Okay. We're ready for verse two. Let's read verse two together. Uh, I'll start from verse one again, because it's not much to read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, I've been practising, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So what about our vertical relationship? We thought about a horizontal relationship. What about our vertical one? Well, here again, even in the first two verses, Peter unpacks incredible truth about who we are and how we live in this world. Because he didn't just call us exiles, did he? I skipped a word. We're elect exiles. You, if you are a follower of Jesus, are a chosen, precious person of God. You are a son or daughter of the great king of kings because he has chosen you. What an amazing privilege. We're not just exiles, but we are elect exiles. If you're unsettled by the fact that we have to come to terms with this reality that we're increasingly going to stick out like a sore thumb in this world, the good news is though we don't belong here, we belong to him. Though we might not belong in this world, we belong to the only one that matters. Peter goes on with this incredible Trinitarian statement, Father, Spirit, Son. I don't know if you noticed that. Beautiful statement. He says, you're not just elect, you're not just chosen. You were foreknown by the Father. If you follow Jesus, the Father had you in mind before the creation of the world. He had a purpose for you. And what was that purpose? It was to be set apart by the Spirit. The Spirit has sanctified us. That means set apart for God, made holy for him. And how has he done it? He's done it by the blood of Jesus. He's done it by bringing us into covenant relationship with him through the blood of Jesus. We can read opening verses to a letter like this and think they're just like those bedtime story introductions we want to skip over. Once upon a time, blah, blah, blah. It was a dark and stormy night, blah, blah, blah. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But no, here in the first three verses are some of the most beautiful and carefully crafted theology in the whole of the letter, in the whole of the New Testament, and because of that, in the whole of literature. We see incredible truth of who we are. And that's particularly true of that odd phrase that Peter ends with. We were elect, we were chosen. Why? Well, the last thing he says is, for obedience to Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, if you're a Christian, for a long time at least, you'll have just, that's just kind of, oh yeah, that's so normal, you don't think about that. But if you're visiting us this morning, or if you're quite new to the faith, you'll think, why are they talking about being sprinkled with blood? That is weird. Let's think about why for a second. But before we get there, time for a quick tangent. I used to say in youth work, a good tangent is a good tangent. My goodness we're teenagers, no offence to any of you in the room, bad tangents are bad tangents, but the good tangent is a good tangent. So we're going to go on a quick tangent, okay? Uh, if we want to understand 1 Peter, we've got to know the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but do you love the Old Testament? Or are they the pages that get a little bit more dusty in your Bibles? I don't know. I won't make you raise your hands, don't worry. But the Old Testament is so much more than filler to make your Bible look a bit weightier and more impressive, It's so much more than kind of the introduction to the proper stuff when Jesus arrives. It's so much more than extracurricular activity for the super keen Christians to get their teeth into. Knowing and understanding the Old Testament is critical to each of us as believers. You see, the Old Testament, if you don't know, is the first, I was going to say half, but it's more like two thirds of our Bibles. Uh, It's all the things that were the holy scriptures of the ancient Israelites And these are really important because the people of God, the ancient Israelites, were chosen by God so that one day the Messiah would come through them. That's who we call Jesus. And so in the prophets, the law, the histories, and the poetry of the Old Testament, we find Jesus. That's where we can meet with him, not just the New Testament. And Peter knew this. Peter knew this really well. And so if we want to get to grips with one Peter, We've got to wrestle with the Old Testament because how will we know otherwise in chapter 1 verse 19 when it says a Christ is like a lamb without blemish or defect. How will we know what he's talking about without having Leviticus in our head? Or when Peter in chapter 2 talks about us being a temple of God and a royal priesthood. How will we know what he's talking about without Solomon's temple or Exodus and the tabernacle in our head? We can understand so much more about Jesus when we see Peter playing on Isaiah 53 or our relationship with God and prayer when we see Peter expounding Psalm 34. You see, if we get to grips with the Old Testament, the word of God comes to life so much more to us. And so I encourage you, I think about 90% of you will probably be terrified or overwhelmed by the idea of kind of, what are all those references and what are those things we're gonna dive into? This term, don't be afraid, If someone makes a reference to the Old Testament, if one of the preachers does it, bring it up in life group. Pester the preacher. Come pester me. We want to see what God has to say through the whole of Scripture. Amen? Amen. Okay, tangent over. Why did I bring that tangent in there? It's because of that slightly odd phrase for obedience to Christ, Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter didn't make that up. Peter didn't actually make that phrase up. Peter's alluding to a very important part of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 24, God has rescued the people of Israel from slavery, a people totally helpless. God has brought them out of the oppressive uh, lives that they were being uh, subjected to into the wilderness, that he might be their God and they might be his people. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And there he says, we are going to make a covenant together. It's a bit like a marriage ceremony where they make vows to each other and they come into a beautiful relationship. And Exodus 24 describes that covenant ceremony. And these are the words of the people, their vows, if you were, in chapter chapter 24 of Exodus, verses 7 and 8. See if you recognize anything familiar. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be, Obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words obedience and blood. What was Peter doing in that second verse of his letter? What was he doing when he called all Christians, those who were sprinkled in the blood of Jesus, who were obedient to Christ and sprinkled with his blood? He was doing something beautiful. He was saying, for you who follow Jesus, you are the covenant people of God. But not the old covenant that was made through law and the blood of animals, but the new covenant that was made through the precious blood of Christ. You have been chosen, you're elect exiles, you are foreknown, you are set apart from the spirit and you've been brought into covenant relationship with the Father through Christ's death and resurrection. We can't unpack it more right now because we've got to keep going. But that is the amazing truth that Peter begins in just the first two verses of this letter. We have chosen people of God. We may not belong to this world, and we're going to talk about that lots this time, but my goodness, we belong to him. It's good news. It's good news. Okay, verses three to five. We're going to pick up a pace a bit. Let's read. Some of you would have hated school, I know that. Uh, So when I say Peter's theology, you might think, oh no, that sounds like hard work. I'm going to switch off or or curl up in a ball. But when Peter did theology, he did the opposite. All theology means is study of God. It means exploring who God is. It It means unpacking what he has done. And so when Peter does theology, he skips around and yelps hallelujah. That's what he does, okay? And that's what verse three says. How does Peter start? blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your Bibles might say, if you've got the NIV, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter's saying to his audience, I'm about to tell you some amazing things about God and they're gonna make you want to sing hallelujah. That's what Peter feels when he does theology and that's what I hope we feel as we carry on looking through the letter this term. And so what's Peter so excited about? Well, the first thing is this. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has caused us to be born again into a living hope. A living hope. Hope's a powerful thing, isn't it? And with anything that's powerful, it can be used for good or for ill. The old English phrase goes, it's the hope that kills you. And I'm afraid some of you and posh fans probably know that better than most of us. Um, But hope is a power, too soon, no, okay. Um, hope is a powerful... <laughs> we'll have ministry time for that later. Um, hope, hope is a powerful thing. But if our hope is in something that is not sure, is not certain, then that hope is dangerous. That hope will crush us. And if we're honest, many of us live in part or in whole with dead hope. I don't know what, your, what is your hope in. I wonder. Maybe it's in modern healthcare. I'm quite healthy, quite fit. Stuff isn't really going wrong. And if it did, we got great medicine. It's only ever getting better. I'm sure it'll be fine. But some of us as well have had conversations with our doctors where they turned to us or to a relative and said, I'm really sorry, but I don't actually know what we're going to try next because our bodies are perishing. All of them. Maybe it's uh, a good buffer in the bank balance. Maybe that's where we find hope. Oh, if I just have a little bit more, I'll start relaxing. If I just get that job with a slightly better salary, I'll start focusing on the family again. But then we start to realise that food is getting more and more expensive. Things like fuel are hugely... Or maybe your hope is in a person. A person who should be able to support you in some ways. Maybe a spouse or or maybe a political figure, and our hope is in them until they fail us and they let us down and we're left adrift at sea. Hope in anything but Jesus will fail you. Hope in Jesus will do anything but. Hope in the world or in people or yourselves is hope that will perish, hope that will be defiled, Hope that will fade away. It's dead hope. But hope in Jesus is living hope. It's living hope. Why is it living? It's living hope, firstly, because it is based on the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not based on what ifs. As Christians, our hope isn't a philosophy or a maybe. Our hope is based on events that happened. Jesus Christ was killed. And Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And so our hope is a living hope because it's based on the one who defeated death and is alive. But it's also a living hope because as we not just put our eyes back to the resurrection but forwards to the life to come, we see the one who is still alive forever. We saw that last week. Paul unpacked wonderfully what Christ is doing now. And we look ahead to the time actually where we will enter into his kingdom, where Christ will return and we'll receive resurrection bodies where we will be like him in every way, where all wrong will be undone. We'll have that inheritance, which wasn't an inheritance like the inheritance of the Israelites when they were kicked out of the land that faded and was defiled and perished. But we have an inheritance in Christ, which is undefiled and imperishable and unfading. So hope in Jesus is based on looking back the resurrection of Christ, looking forward to the eternal life to come. But living hope in Jesus must also affect how we live now. Hope in Jesus is not living if it causes us to curl up in a ball, bury our head in the sand, and hope that we can just get out of this life and into the next one. This life is not for wasting. Living hope transforms this life. It wonderfully transforms this life. So when we realise that our bodies are perishing, when we come to terms with the fact that death is actually round the corner for each of us and we we don't really have any control over that, we look to the one who defeated death and we know that death will not have the final say in our lives because Christ has overcome. And so we say, Lord, with the few days you've given me in this life, I live for you, not for myself. And when the money seems to fade away and we don't know how we will make ends meet, We look to the one who lives now and is interceding for us, who knows he will care for all our needs now, but also that there is a time where we will have no needs. There will be no needs in the kingdom to come. And so we say, Lord, in this life, I'm going to act generously and I'm going to trust you with my finances. And when we see those people in our lives, which we had our hope in, but they're defiled by failure. And when hope is crushed, We turn again to the one who is perfect, who has never failed us, who will never fail us. And we say, Lord, I've been living for me or I've been living for them. But Lord, for these few days you've given me, I will live for you until I see you face to face. You see, our understanding of tomorrow, it's got to affect how we live today. That's living hope because it affects our lives. Yes, it's based on the living one. It's, It's Christ, but it affects how we live today we have a living hope in Jesus to an inheritance which unlike everything anything else in this life is imperishable unfading and undefiled praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ peter carries on in verse 6 in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you will uh, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold the perishes Though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter has given us many reasons to rejoice. Many, many reasons to rejoice. But he's writing to an audience which he knows has many reasons to not rejoice. Peter is writing to Christians who had been in all sorts of situations. Some were looked down upon because of their faith, some would have missed out on promotions or even be fired because they were Christians. Some then, and over the centuries, lost their lives for following Jesus. Many in the 21st century around the world also face threat of their lives because they follow Jesus. But even and exactly in those specific contexts, Peter encourages them to rejoice. He says, rejoice, rejoice. But not just because one day it will all be made better. Yes, we do rejoice at that. But remember, we don't bury our heads in the sand. And he says something more profound. He says, actually, there is reason to rejoice even in your suffering. There's reason to rejoice even in your suffering. What does he mean by that? How can that be? Peter says that the grief we walk through because of our faith in Jesus is not in vain. Because God uses those experiences and that very suffering to refine and purify our faith. So that is a beautiful and precious gift to God. It's like gold. Gold that goes through a fire, which burns away the imperfections and becomes more valuable and more beautiful and more shining as it comes out. That's what faith is like, which is tested by suffering. the very suffering which may in this life cause humiliation, which may cause family division and even threat of physical attack, Peter says actually that same proven faith, that genuine faith will result at the revelation of Christ in praise and glory and honour. What a wonderful thing that the Lord one day will turn to us and say, I honour you. You sacrificed in this life. And so I honour you as you come into my kingdom. That Christ would reward us because of the great things he has done through us, even in our suffering. It's a mystery to fully understand that. But when we suffer for the Lord, we do not suffer in vain. If you have suffered for Lord, you must know you do not do that in vain. It is used for the glory of God. And it is used for your good. It's important to say that we don't go looking for suffering. We don't go out to try and find things to prove ourselves to God in some ways. That's not what Peter's saying here. Notice quite an important little clause he says. He says, if necessary. If necessary, some of you will suffer. But the flip side of that is to notice that actually it is sometimes necessary to suffer. And what we'll see throughout 1 Peter is there are many and varied ways that as Christians, it's just par for the course that we suffer in this life because of our faith. Suffering because of ridicule for our beliefs or moral stance. Suffering for saying no to sinful passions. Suffering from doing rights at the hand of those who are evil. And much more. That's normal Christian living then. And I believe it is now. And I do worry sometimes. I do worry that we, we may be sleepwalking into a time of increased persecution without being ready for it without realising that this is normal Christianity and actually what we've been living in maybe for a little while, in England at least, has not been normal. To be a follower of Jesus means increasingly to stand out like a sore thumb from our beliefs about what it is to be human, what family is made for, marriage and sex, the sanctity of life. Even the belief that there is a God who has the right to hold us to account is increasingly offensive in the ears of the world around us we're in an age where even to voice a belief that differs from the received norm results in pressure to be cancelled, silenced, or worse. Are we ready for that? Now, we don't go looking for a fight. Peter's clear, only if necessary. But if it is necessary, are we willing to set your hope on unseen things in the face of persecution? Set your hope in something you can't yet see, you can't yet taste, you can't yet touch, Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Am I willing to suffer for Jesus? I ask myself that sometimes. I recognise as a leader, is my name against the sermons? Is my voice which will sometimes more publicly speak the words of God? Am I willing for some of the things I say to be picked up and used against me? When I think about that, to be honest, that, that... what I might experience is nothing compared to what most brothers and sisters of ours may experience in the world around us right now. But even as I think about what that may look like in my life, there are times which it does make me feel like I'd rather just shy from those things. I'd rather be quiet about those things. I'd rather not stir anything. But when I fear, Peter reminds me of this. This is what he says in verse 8 and 9. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When I struggle to know whether it is worth keep holding on, I remember who I do it for. Not why I do it, who I do it for. It's for Jesus. You see, I love him. I love him. I haven't seen him. It would have been amazing, wouldn't it, to see what it was like 2,000 years ago in walking on earth, the words he said, the things he did. I haven't seen him. Peter saw him. That's the amazing thing about that line. Peter himself saw him, but the believers he wrote to didn't. And I haven't seen him. But what it would be like to see him in new creation when I get face to face with him. But he's worth everything to me. I love him and I trust in him. I don't just believe something about him. I believe in him, that he'll come through for me, that his cross was enough for me, that not one of his sheep will be let to go astray. And so I genuinely rejoice when things get scary, when things go wrong, when there are moments in my life where I feel like daily I am overwhelmed. I can rejoice because I come to Christ and my joy is anchored in him. When my situations may for a time not change, they may remain overwhelming, they remain oppressive My Jesus doesn't change either. And so in him, I can rejoice. He has given me the grace to hold on. And I know that I'm obtaining the outcome of my faith, the salvation of my soul. That's such a beautiful line. What does that mean? I think it means this, that as we rejoice in Christ, we are tasting something of eternity. As we rejoice in Christ, we are tasting something of what we will get to enjoy for the rest of eternity, which is being with our Lord when we rejoice in him despite the circumstances, that is the great glory that we will know. Christ, our only hope, our living hope. I have an unborn child on the way who many of you will know about that and I can't express how much I love her. I have a wife of eight, nearly nine years who is the most wonderful woman, so patient to me as you probably would imagine she has to be. And yet without hesitation, I love Christ first. He's the most precious one to me. He is so worthy. He is so wonderful. And that is the thing that anchors me in the times of fear. Because though I have not seen him, I love him. And though I do not see him now, I believe in him and I rejoice rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. We're going to end in a second. I wonder if, um, Dave, do you want to? Jump up for me or um, everyone can, I don't mind. Um, Let's just read the last couple of verses as we end. In verse 10, Peter says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you, through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We live in incredibly privileged times because we live this side of the cross. Do you know that Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, even Moses is jealous of us because we've seen this side of the cross. They wanted to see Christ come. They longed for the day when the prophecies would be fulfilled. The angels themselves stand flabbergasted that Christ came in the way that he did. You see, the privilege is Christ. The privilege is Christ. And that's what we'll see all this term. But Christ is also the pattern for all of us who believe in him and follow him. He's the pattern. Because for each of us, it's through death that we go to resurrection. It's through suffering that we go into glory with him. The prophets predicted the sufferings, but they also predicted that glory. And so we live in this life as exiles, as foreigners, as strangers, because we don't belong here, do we? But we belong to him. And as we live our lives today in light of eternity, as our horizontal relationships are affected by our vertical one, we cling to Christ, our living hope, This is how Peter ends the letter. I know it's a bit of a spoiler alert on week one, but these are the last verses, basically, of 1 Peter. Chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, he says this. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. 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 So what we're going to do now is we're going to let God apply this to our hearts. Because I believe that as we've spoken through some of this, there are dead hopes that some of us are clinging to. There have been things in my life in the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing these things that God has spoken to me about. Some things about money that God has spoken to me about. What are those dead hopes? And so I'd love to invite you. No one has to. No one ever has to do anything I say, (laughs) but I invite you, if you'd like to and you're able to, why don't we stand just as a posture of engaging with God. I find it helpful to close my eyes because it helps me to uh, focus and not be distracted uh, and just receive from Him. But we're going to spend a little bit of time now just letting God speak to us. So what are those things that are dead hopes that we've been putting our trust in? What are the things that have been blocking us and blinding us from actually holding on to the only one which hope is sure in, which hope is alive in? We're going to just spend a moment now and just let God speak to us about that. We're not going to do anything particularly funny after. I'm not going to make you come to the front this morning. We might other weeks, but not this morning. We're just going to let God speak. So let's just wait. And ask God in our hearts, Father, what are the things? What are the things which I'm clinging to with my fingernails? Which are dead hope. That are perishing. That are defiled. That fade away. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray by your Spirit. Um, there are big fears that are coming to the surface for one or two of you I think so I'm just asking God what he's doing I think there are big fears that God is just putting his finger on let God minister to you in that the spirit set you free of those things come to Christ in that I think maybe someone has um, (laughs) right now when you're just before God there's a lot of anger that he's wanting to speak to He just wants to soothe. He just wants to show you that he won't fail you like you think he will, like you think he has. Feel free to continue in this space. If God is saying particular things to you, feel free to just continue here. You don't need to rush on. We're going to do a, a significant thing right now going to take communion. We're the people who have come to obedience in Christ and who've been sprinkled with his blood. We are those who the blood of Christ is the blood of the new covenant that poured out for many. And so my dear brothers and sisters, if you're followers of Jesus, let's take that meal together, which he gave us. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take that wonderful meal together now.